0: Revelation chapter two, beginning with verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have there those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now let's start this morning by just kind of setting up a bit of the backdrop to this church located in the first century in this city of Pergamos. Pergamos was located north of Ephesus and Smyrna, the first two cities we've looked at, and was situated, unlike those two cities, about 15 miles inland. It wasn't a coastal city, and yet Pergamos was known by her beauty. She didn't have a large population, but it was a beautiful city. It was seen in the region as an educational center. It was a political um, and military center. For the region, Pergamos, probably above all, was a center for pagan worship and religion. To this point, aside from the three temples in Pergamos dedicated to emperor worship, this city had temples dedicated to several of the most prominent Greek and Roman gods. Now, the two most notable were first an altar to Zeus. It was situated high up above the city on the Acropolis. It was recognized in the day as one of the ancient wonders of the world. You can see uh, ruins of this temple actually in a uh, museum located in Berlin today. The second was the temple of Asclepius, who was represented by a serpent and known to be the god of medicine and healing. Historians say that sick people from all over the Roman world would travel specifically to Pergamos, specifically to this temple in order to receive healing, to be cured by the serpent savior. It's actually where we get our medical symbol today. Now, in the substance of his letter, Jesus points out something really interesting, fascinating, kind of creepy, to be very honest. He points out that in Pergamos, The city is where Satan's throne was located. He also says that the city was where Satan dwelt. Now, though it can be speculated and imagined that Jesus, in using these two phrases, is pointing out, emphasizing that Pergamos, that in the city there was this satanic stronghold, that there was a big satanic influence in how the city operated. And yet, note that there is nothing about what Jesus is saying here to indicate that we shouldn't take his words literally, that in Pergamos was Satan's throne and it's where he dwelt. You know, contrary to most depictions, I hope you know that Satan is currently not living in hell. Like he's not the Lord of hell. He's not living in hell. Him and the demons aren't chilling in hell. Hell was created by God to be a permanent place Um, of judgment for Satan and the demons. They're not there yet. That judgment hasn't occurred. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul would say in Ephesians 2 verse 2 that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Now, some have speculated that in regards to Pergamos, maybe Satan's throne and his dwelling had something to do with these two pagan temples. And yet, I think that there's a third theory that indicates that during this time, Satan indeed dwelt in Pergamos. Keep in mind, Satan is a created being. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's limited to both time and space. Satan is not everywhere at once. He's in one place at a time. And during this time, it seems he was in Pergamos. Now today, I have no idea where he is. Jesus isn't telling us that. But in this time, he's in Pergamos. And in my mind, the best theory as to why he was in Pergamos kind of goes all the way back to the fall of Babylon. Bear with me. There seems to be historical evidence to suggest that when Babylon fell in the year 487 BC to the Persian king Xerxes, that there was a Babylonian priesthood known as the Chaldean Magi, that in looking for a new place to now set up their base of operations, actually escaped the city, made their way to Asia Minor, and settled in this city of Pergamos. There's historical evidence to substantiate that following the fall of Babylon, this Chaldean Magi, these Babylonian priests, made their way to Pergamos, setting up this pagan religion, which, by the way, has its roots all the way back into the book of Genesis with a man named Nimrod and the Tower of Babel, which is where we ultimately get Babylon. It was occultic. It was satanic. It was real, and it was powerful. And it would seem that all the way back to the 400 B.C., that there was this element of Babylonian paganism in Pergamos in which they carried some of their ancient rituals and rites and religious practices. So in a sense, Satan being the ruler of Babylon and all of the imagery that we find throughout the Old Testament and later in the book of Revelation, it could be that his throne was there, his dwelling place was there because of the remnant of this Babylonian priesthood taking up shop in the city of Pergamos. For your own study, if you find this kind of thing interesting, the reason you have the altar of Zeus located in Berlin is that Hitler was obsessed with not only this Chaldean priesthood, but he was also obsessed with the altar of Zeus in particular. And a lot of the Nazi imagery uh, finds its reference from this particular a historical place event and thus we find maybe some sat- satanic influence. What's also interesting about that particular theory and how it applies to what Jesus is saying is that we have an interesting individual and we'll get to him in a minute, but Balaam is mentioned here. And if you go back to numbers 22 verse 5, you don't have to do it on your own, but what's fascinating about Balaam is that it would appear he was likely originally from the area of the great river, that being Euphrates. So it could be that Balaam had some uh, element and familiarity with this Babylonian priesthood as well. While we'll get to the context, the historical context of this letter, I wanna jump right to Jesus's commendation. Like the good things he says about this particular church. He begins, he says, I know your works and where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, there's a coupling of two ideas that's significant. Jesus is saying, I know your works especially in context to what you're facing. The fact that in this city, there was this strong demonic presence, this oppression, this influence, the fact that they were still serving the Lord, still being a light, still being a witness in the face of all of these big mounting pressures. He places it in context. He's impressed that they were able to maintain their works in light of their location and the culture they're in. Though this church was up against incredible spiritual warfare. I mean, imagine a city where Jesus is telling you, yeah, that's where Satan's living. I mean, imagine the type of immorality, the type of perversion, the type of pagan influence, the type of witchcraft. They were up against incredible warfare and temptation and immorality. And yet they still remained faithful and they endured. It's to their credit, Jesus commends them for it. He also says that against all odds, you held fast to my name. You see, these Christians not only relied on Jesus, identified with Jesus, but holding fast to his name meant that they actively defended the name and nature of Jesus. And you did not deny my faith, though they were in the middle of the fire of spiritual oppression. Generally speaking, these believers in this church in Pergamos, they remain true to the faith. They remain faithful, even in the presence of some strong, contrary forces pushing against them. Jesus specifically, in regards to their faithfulness, mentions that they were faithful, even in those days which Antipas, was my faithful martyr. Now, we know nothing of Antipas. He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, and thus, any type of understanding of what Jesus might be referencing, we have to rely on church legend and church history. So it's, we don't have any factual basis for this, other than the fact that it was kind of a legend that was developed, coming out of this particular time period about Antipas. The only thing we know is legend, and that's that Antipas, during this season, happened to be the pastor of this church in Pergamos. Now, on the altar of Zeus, Zeus being represented by this bronze bull, during a wave of persecution happening towards the end of the first century by the hands of Emperor Domitian, we discussed that last Sunday, legend has it, that because he would not deny the faith, because he stood tall, Antipas was sentenced to be executed. But he was sentenced to be executed in such a way as to pay homage to the God of Zeus. And so they took this bronze statue, which was hollow, and they placed Antipas inside of this bronze and statue, and they ignited a fire around it. And thus Antipas was basically baked alive for his faith. Now, it's legend, but Jesus does refer to him as my faithful martyr, or literally witness. I love the fact that Jesus, Jesus took personal possession of a man who stood for him. A man who possessed Jesus, Jesus possessed him, and I love that. Now, that's about the end of Jesus's commendations of this church of Pergamos. And let's quickly transition here to the criticism. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Now, in regards to writing to the church of Ephesus, we're told, I have this one thing against you, which, okay, one thing we got to work on. Sweet. In regards to Smyrna, because they were the persecuted church, Jesus has nothing critical to say, only encouragements. But it's not good when Jesus kind of moves beyond there's one thing to I have a few things, that means there's some issues going on within this church. He continues, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality, thus you also have, he says, those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know if you noticed it if you picked it up, What's interesting about this particular letter is that while Jesus is clearly referencing two different doctrinal beliefs, the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was creeping into this church, Jesus's criticism is not with them, is it? D- did you notice? That in his criticism, Jesus holds the faithful in the church responsible for allowing these particular doctrines to be taught and practiced in the first place. Look at it again. He says, I have this against you, which would be the faithful believers, that you have there, the church, those, a different group, the non-faithful who hold to the doctrine or literal teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. It would appear from the context here that the issue Jesus had with this church wasn't the unfounded doctrines that were being taught, but the fact that the faithful weren't doing anything about it. They weren't taking a stand. They weren't resisting. They weren't fighting for doctrinal integrity. Instead, Jesus, he's critical that they're allowing these things to exist, that they're not stopping them. Well, Pergamos is often known, it's referred to, as the compromising church. You have the loveless church of Ephesus, the persecuted church of Smyrna, and the compromising church of Pergamos. She might better be titled the apathetic church. Now, in order to unpack what was really happening in this church of Pergamos, it's obviously essential that you define what Jesus means, what he's referring to by addressing the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Obviously, understanding those two things is significant to our understanding. In regards to Balaam, he's a very interesting, colorful, confusing, mysterious character that we find popping out of the middle of nowhere in the book of Numbers. Specifically, if you want to read about Balaam on your own and his interactions with the Moabite king Balak, you can refer to Numbers 22, 23, 24, and then later chapter 31. He pops up in a few other instances in the Old Testament, but they're nothing more than references back to the events that happened here. And the story is interesting because the children of Israel have been freed from the captivity, their slavery in Egypt. A deliverer had been raised up, Moses. And Moses is leading the children of Israel through the Sinai to the land of promise, the land that God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. And upon making their way, they're passing through pagan lands. There's opposition rising up. And I mean, Israel is kicking butt, not even worrying about taking names. I mean, they're destroying opposition. And it was clearly supernatural because they were nothing more than a ragtag group of slaves who were making their way across the desert. They haven't been organized into a nation per se. They're not possessing of military acumen or or knowledge. I mean, they're slaves. And yet these oppositional forces, these other nations, in fear of this two to three million people making their way into their land... Army after army would rise up, and God would yield this supernatural victory. It was clear that there was a true and living God behind the children of Israel, and it freaked everyone out. Even these pagan nations were worried, of which was Moab. Now, the king of Moab at this time was a man named Balak, recognizing that there was true supernatural power behind this people group, fearing they might be next to be destroyed. He sends representatives to secure the services of a prophet named Balaam. Now what makes Balaam interesting is that he was a genuine prophet. We don't know anything about him, but he actually heard from God. He would receive prophetic visions from God. He was a snake and a charlatan, but he had some connection. And we don't know exactly how that existed or where that had originated. But Balak sends to Balaam and he wants Balaam to come and curse the people of God. Well, immediately, Balaam's like, I can't do it. So they offer him more money. And he's pow-wowing with God. And God's like, don't do it. He's like, I can't do it. And then they kind of give him a blank check. And they're like, we really want you to Come. So Balaam goes back to God. God's like, you can't do it. And Balaam decides, yeah, but it's a blank check. I'm going anyway. And if you recall on the way, God has every intention on killing Balaam. He's riding on a donkey. The donkey stops because the donkey can see the angel with a sword drawn. Balaam can't. Balaam's thinking the donkey's just being resistant. He gets off and he starts beating on the donkey. And then in a weird twist, and it's trippy, The donkey turns around and is like, yo, do you wanna die? Do you have a death wish? The donkey starts talking to Balaam, who's the prophet of God, which I find awesome because if God could speak through a jackass, there's hope for me. Like I'm I'm encouraged by that. Now in this instance, he can now see the angel He's filled with trepidation and fear. He apologizes to the donkey. He was beating unfairly. But what ends up happening? He still goes. And in three different instances, every time Balaam would get up to curse the children of Israel, out of his mouth would come a blessing, which was not preferred from his employer, which created some tension and conflict. Now, the story kind of ends And yet in chapter 31, we're given a detail because ultimately the children of Israel do destroy the Moabites. And we're told that as a result, Balaam also died. But there's this little nugget that seems to imply that because his cursings weren't working, that Balaam provided advice, counsel to Balak, saying, I can't curse the people, but I know someone who can, and that's God. As long as the people are obeying God and they're remaining under this covenant relationship with God, there's nothing anyone can do. They're gonna rock and they're gonna roll. I can't, I can't curse them. But if you can entice them to come out from under the umbrella of their covenant relationship, then God will curse them for you. And sure enough, it would seem that Balak ends up sending all the hotties of Moab into the camp to entice the Israelites into sexual sin, to pull them into pagan worship and pagan gods. And as a result, God sent a plague, which destroyed several thousand young men. It's quite, quite telling. Now, there's two other instances where Balaam is mentioned in the New Testament and they provide us additional clues to trying to understand what this doctrine of Balaam actually is that Jesus is addressing. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, we'll put it on the screen. Peter says, they have forsaken the right way. They've gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Boar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Then Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Jude says, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, while these passages make it clear that the way and the error of Balaam had to do with greed, and though it would be easy to see that the doctrine of Balaam had something to do with the particulars of what Balaam taught Balak, I'm personally of the opinion his instructions to Balak were actually a byproduct of his doctrine and not necessarily the doctrine itself. Like, I don't think the doctrine that's creeping into the church had much to do with sexual immorality or things uh, eating things sacrificed to idols. Also note, in the, in the Greek structuring of what's being communicated in this sentence, the line who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, refers to providing the reader an understanding of who he's talking about. It refers to Balaam and not his doctrine. So I think trying to say that his doctrine had to do with sexual immorality or some type of of abuse of liberty, I, I think is going a bit too far. Keep it simple. See, at the core of Balaam's story sits the reality that Balaam viewed God's word as a means to his end. Though he was an anointed prophet whom God spoke to and in whom God spoke through, and while Balaam received genuine prophetic visions, you should go read them, they're awesome, it would seem Balaam was always looking for a way that he could use God's word and the truth of God's word to profit himself as opposed to being profitable for others. In a sense, Balaam presents a prototype of a corrupted teacher who intentionally twists the truth of Scripture for their own personal gain. Ever seen any of them? There's a couple television shows dedicated to this particular doctrine. Before we get there, Jesus also points out that, quote, You have there also who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, in his first letter to the Ephesians, Jesus mentions that he hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. In this instance, it's their doctrine that Jesus finds equally despicable. Now, we mentioned it two Sundays ago in the Greek. This word Nicolaites is a compound word, niko, meaning to conquer. It's where we actually get the word Nike from, to conquer. Laetes means the people. So Nicolaitan, the word, means to conquer the people. Many scholars, and I happen to agree with them, believe that this word Nicolaitans describes an early group of people within Christianity who were seeking to reexert authority over the people by claiming a need for a priestly intermediary. David Guzik observes that, quote, the title possesses the idea of a profound authority and a hierarchical separatism. Now, with these things in mind, what twisted doctrines were being taught in this church that were so motivated by greed that it would also foster a need for a priestly intermediary? And to that, To answer that question, I think it's very helpful to go back to the context, the historical context. As we've mentioned, each of these letters, seven in totality, represents Jesus' full message to the church. While it's difficult to place each of them into a very uh, defined time period, they do loosely represent movements and eras within Christianity as a whole. So in writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, when there were 12, seven always representing completion, we understand that Jesus is writing to the church, beginning with the apostolic church, continuing down to today in our church. He's writing to the church and that each letter represents loosely a period of time. Ephesus being the post-apostolic church, that second and third generation of believers. Smyrna representing the persecuted church, which has always existed. This church in Pergamos, though, seems to represent the next period of time or history that's known as the Byzantine church, or also can be referenced by historians as the church of the Roman emperors. Now, last Sunday, we noted that beginning with Nero for like 250 years, the Christian church endured 10 years different waves of intense persecution brought about by the Roman Empire. And while each of these 10 were brutal in their own right, it might be that the final persecution of the church, initiated by Diocletian and continued by his successor, Galerius, could have very well been the worst. In 303 AD, Diocletian, officially rescinded all legal rights of Christianity. It was open season on the church. Property was confiscated. People were running for their lives. And as a result, mass executions ensued. Historian Eusebius, who wrote of the martyrs during this time period, which he's from, he said, quote, "...for they drew the stoutest branches together with machines." And bound the limbs of the martyrs to them, and then allowing the branches to assume their natural position, they tore asunder instantly the limbs of those from whom they had contrived this. All these things, and he lists all kinds of persecutions happening during this time period, were done not for days or for a short time, but for a long series of years. He writes of one instance when, quote, a hundred men and young children and women were slain, being condemned to various and diverse torments, some suffering decapitation, others tortured by fire, so that the murderous sword was blunted and became weak and was broken. And the very executioners grew weary and had to relieve each other. Like what's happening from 303 on, the persecution It was intense, to say the least. And what's amazing about this period of time, and we touched on it last Sunday, was that in spite of the persecution, the church was being a glorious witness. Eusebius also wrote, he says, that in these conflicts, the the noble martyrs of Christ shone illustrious over the entire world. The evidences of the truly divine an unspeakable power of our Savior, Savior were made manifest through them. This was an intense time of persecution. Unlike maybe the church had ever seen before, they remained victorious, their light shone, God still worked. Now, recognizing the environment, the climate here, is important for what almost immediately came after this persecution. It's really historically incredible. Though the persecution had been intense, there were two byproducts that the Roman emperors didn't anticipate. One, the church continued to grow at an incredible clip. Some have estimated that for every one martyr during the reign of uh, of Diocletian, four people converted as a result. Sometimes uh, it would even be the executioners themselves that would convert looking at the incredible nature of these, of, these, of these saints' faith. And then thus, they would then be executed themselves. I mean, awesome stories happen in the midst of incredible darkness. But the other byproduct of this persecution is that the, the public, the non-Christian public, like their support for these practices began to wane. There wasn't much more of a, of a public appetite for what was happening. I mean, when you're reaching the point that you're executing people by tying their arms to bent branches of trees to release them and rip their arms, like we've entered a whole nother nother game. It's kind of like how galvanized segments of America has become recently to this growing threat of ISIS because of the videos we've seen of people, Christians being beheaded the raw and brutal and grotesque practices. So so the church is growing and the public support is waning, meaning that something interesting happened for Emperor Galerius in 311 AD. On his deathbed, he issued as one of his last acts, he issued what was known as the edict of toleration. Now this didn't legalize Christianity, but it effectively put to end this practice of Christian persecution. All violence directed towards Christians was effectively ended by the Edict of Toleration. Now, one year later, 312 AD, Galerius has died, and there is a conflict for who's going to take power. 312, as the armies of Constantine marched into a final battle, he hoped, would finally reunite a very splintered Roman Empire. Constantine claims the night before the battle, he received a vision from God of a cross with the instructions, the command from God that in this sign you will conquer. Now, why? We don't know if the vision was true or not. We do know that Constantine ordered his armies before going into conflict the next day to put this Christian symbol on all of their battle shields. They did go into battle under the banner and symbol of the cross. Now, because Constantine's armies proved victorious and some would see as proof of his conversion and others maybe as just a, some, like a, an act of like shrewd political savvy. In 313 AD, Constantine took the Edict of Toleration one step further by issuing what's known as the Edict of Milan, which formally legalized Christian worship. It restored all the confiscated properties back to the church, and the church could operate free and open within society. Now, in the edict, Constantine wrote, It is proper that the Christians and all others should have liberty to follow that mode of religion which to each of them appeared best. For the first time in maybe her entire history, the church can finally operate in the world around her without fear of religious persecution. Now, the official merger of the church and state wouldn't happen for approximately 60 more years. And we'll get to that next Sunday. History does show that Constantine personally became very involved and Christian affairs. Now, admittedly, there are some instances where Constantine's leadership proved to be beneficial. For example, there was a growing heresy within the church known as Arianism. Constantine had all of the church leaders gather. He told them specifically to deal with this. The camps broke. For a couple months, they argued, and they're debated. Until one noble saint, a man by St. Nicholas, who, yes, the same St. Nicholas that is now some jolly old fat man going down your chimney, that Saint Nicholas, according to history, ends up kind of breaking the divide. He walks over to this man spewing the heresies, and he just slaps him. And he turns, and he walks and sits back down. And it was kind of like in this dramatic moment that everyone was like, what are we even debating? And they ended up issuing one of the early creeds, it's known as the Nicene Creed. This particular council, the Council of Nicaea, probably would not have happened if not for Constantine's leadership. And so in some instances, it proved beneficial. But overall, the favor of the Roman emperor yielded within the church several unintended and in many ways tragic consequences because the church now enjoyed the protection and financial support of the state, which, which you can't blame. I mean, coming off of that type of persecution, and in two years, the emperor's a Christian, and you're protected and bankrolled? I mean, that's a, that's a, a drastic reversal of fortunes. But two things ended up happening. First, the church became very quickly and almost immediately susceptible to institutional corruption by those who saw her as a way to amass power. Secondly, in order to keep her new favor with the state, the church began justifying moral and theological compromises. One would be right to say that during this season of church history, while Satan's strategy of persecution had failed, the wily devil saw instead privilege and power as the way to effectively minimize the church's effectiveness. You know, the old saying is true, right? Power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, let me explain how those corrupted by power were able to twist God's word in such a way that it not only justified moral compromise, But created a theological need by which those who controlled the church could get rich in the process. First, during this time period, the theology of grace became twisted to justify moral compromise. And we see this in the church today because the church was scared of offending people, because the church was scared of losing political favor with the emperor. The notion of God's grace, that unmerited favor, was twisted, whereby Christian liberty became a license for sin. During this time period, a person was permitted to live like hell and still go to heaven. Because, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Have you ever had someone use that to justify their behavior? I sure have. The second thing that happened, so first, the theology of grace was used to justify immorality, moral compromise. But the second thing that happened, don't overlook it, the church ended up becoming the dispenser of grace. Instead of taking sin directly to Jesus, you know, coming to the cross, receiving God's grace through faith, a theological position was beginning to emerge within the church that required sin to instead be taken to the church. Confession, confessing to a priest who would then do what? Provide instructions as to how God's grace could be earned through works. We even see it today within the Catholic church. You go, you live like hell all week, it's okay you can go to your priest and you can confess and your priest will give you penance, things to do to atone for those misdeeds. Now, because the people now needed the church to receive God's grace so they could receive his forgiveness, the church began to amass incredible power and control naturally over the people they were the ones that held the keys to heaven. You might say it was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And and, you know, as a fact of history, it didn't take long for the church to figure out a way to take this new influence and monetize it. It was during this period of history that the concepts of, of, of penance and indulgences, purgatory, icons and relics began appearing within the church. Literally, the church was ruling over the people, utilizing twisted doctrines meant for personal gain. You might call that the doctrine of Balaam. You could live in moral compromise and still receive God's grace for the easy price of 1995. We see this today, don't we? Prosperity gospel. It's all over the church. Twisting of doctrine for personal gain. I mean, when your private jet doesn't work and you need a $50 million new private jet or two of them, we've gone too far. Now let's look at Jesus' counsel, his warning and reward. He says, repent or else. Never a good thing. Like you hear that from your mom. Do something or else. Like you know they're serious. Repent or else I will come to you quickly. Notice that. You quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Once again, substantiating this idea that Jesus is speaking to the faithful and how they were or weren't handling the faith. Less Now, why we understand repentance is a fundamental changing of the mind that leads to a change of direction or behavior. Kind of the pressing question here is what was Jesus commanding the faithful element of this church to repent of? And I think the answer is found when Jesus says, repent or else, what's he going to do? I will fight against them. Like the criticism of this church was that they had been lackadaisical in how they were handling the growing influence of these doctrines. They were twisting God's grace and abusing the people. They weren't doing anything to stop these doctrines. And understand... It was not just their failure to act or this faithful remnant's cowardice to stand that Jesus is wanting them to repent of. He wants them to turn and to do something. He's wanting the faithful and telling them to repent. He's wanting them to now stand and fight against those who are twisting his word and abusing his people or else Jesus promises he'll deal with it. He says, I will fight against them. In the Greek, this word literally means, like, I will wage war with them. It's not just that I will resist them. I will fight them. And then it's, I mean, it's not an accident, right? That Jesus began his letter by introducing himself as whom? As he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna fight against these people. And you know what? Don't forget, I'm the one with the big battle ax we're not going knuckles to knuckles. I'm swinging a sword that's meant to destroy, that's meant to judge. And his warning, he now explains that the sharp two-edged sword is in actuality what? He says it, the sword of his mouth, or literally his word. The power of God's word. Hebrews 4 verse 12 we're told for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is the discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, in considering all of these things and their historical context, you have to wonder how a corrupt element within the church was able to introduce so many non-biblical ideas or doctrines. And the answer is, is that in conjunction with all of these things happening, there was something else taking place within this church. Those who led the church stopped teaching the Bible and those who were in the church stopped reading it for themselves, which is how they became susceptible to heresy. It was interesting, but the church in Pergamos largely failed to heed Jesus's warning, which forced him to make good on his promise. Consider the fact that the fundamental catalyst for what we know as the Protestant Reformation, the one that rejected all of these non-biblical doctrines, you know what the catalyst was? People had returned to reading and studying God's word. It was God's word that in the Protestant Reformation waged war against these doctrines. Notice Jesus closes his letter with two promises. Two promises to him who overcomes. First, He says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. No doubt, going back to Exodus chapter 16, God providing manna in the wilderness for his people to eat, invoking this image, Jesus is promising that there's nothing better than the perfect provisions he'll provide from someone who just enjoys his word, who lets the Bible be the basis for their behavior, be the basis for their church. He's like, you're not going to be robbed from that. You will enjoy that. It's my hidden manna. I will give. It's my perfect provision. You don't need anything else other than my word. It's powerful enough. He also says, I will give to him a white stone. Now there's a lot of theories in regards to the white stone. you can look at look them up on your own. all different reasons a white stone existed throughout the the Roman society but but I think, and I'll just i'm I'm the one teaching this morning, so I'll just cut out all the other theories and just go what I think. Um, you can disagree with me and be wrong. That's fine. it's up to you. You can do that on your own. but i I'm kind of of the opinion that because this white stone we're we're told had a special name written on it. That the only person who would know would obviously be the one writing it, that being Jesus, and the one receiving it, that being the overcomer. That because it was a white stone with a special name on it and in consistency with how stones could be used, I think it's an invitation. It's a heavenly invitation. It's letting you know that if you overcome, you have been invited by Jesus to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that you've been given a personal, special, individualized invitation. I love it. It's, it's, it's kind of akin to Jesus, you know, sending out wedding invitations with all the frou and your special name written on it. Now, in conclusion, what is Jesus saying to us? Because that's really the nature of our examination of these letters. We find them interesting uh, we find them interesting in what Jesus is saying to that church in the first century, to the Byzantine church, that period. But ultimately, we want to know what Jesus is saying to our church through this letter. And, and then more specifically, because a church doesn't have ears to hear, but you do, the application is you. Because guess what? We make up the church. So what's Jesus saying? And, and I think if you boil it down to one central idea, it's this. The greatest danger for any church is not outside opposition, but inward corrosion. This church was determined to hold the front line against the enemy. Satan's throne where Satan dwelt. They were holding it tight. The opposition in Pergamos was fierce. They determined to remain steadfast in their service. They boldly defended Jesus' name, refused to deny the faith, even in the face of martyrdom. And yet, while they were doing all that, occupied with the forces out there, there was a problem. Though we can say this church was on guard for a frontal attack, they were ignoring a spreading cancer within the camp that would yield the same deadly result. The truth is Satan had switched up. He had changed tactics. His strategy was no longer opposition, but instead infiltration. He entered this church with what intentions? Destroying her from within. And how does Satan destroy a church from within? False doctrine. Because Satan knows that false doctrine leads to wrong living, just like he did with Eve in the garden, and later tried to do with Jesus in the wilderness temptations. What does Satan do? What is he a master of? What's his go-to strategy? Taking God's word and twisting it in order to lead people into sin. Remember with Eve, what did Satan do? Hey, what has God said to you, Eve? Well, God said that we we can't eat of this particular tree. We can't see it. We can't even look at it. can't touch it. And then what did Satan do? He twisted it. He was a false teacher. He communicated a principle that was not accurate. And Eve took the fruit and ate. On a side note, you know, Eve was never actually the one given the directive from God. And the irony is that, that Eve's recounting of what God had said was actually wrong. All God had said, don't eat. He didn't say you couldn't look at it. You couldn't, touch. he just said, don't eat it. And how did Eve come to the understanding of what God had said? Well, she had a teacher. His name was Adam, who taught her God's word. Now here's the sad thing. He didn't do it correctly. As a matter of fact, he added to God's word legalism. And it made Eve susceptible to being tricked. Jesus, what is Satan's strategy? He came throwing scripture. Satan is a master of twisting scripture to destroy people and to destroy churches. And this is why Jesus is reminding the faithful, commanding the faithful to be ever vigilant when it comes to false doctrine being taught in his church. For history attests that when the church no longer fights to remain doctrinally sound, the consequences are catastrophic. Be careful what's taught and who you allow to teach you. Because who you allow to teach you, you're giving them a powerful place and you've got to guard against what's being taught because if it's wrong, it's damaging. He who has an ear, let him hear. what The Spirit is saying, in conclusion... There's one final point that I think should be made. If you don't study God's word on your own, or come to a church that teaches you God's word, if you don't know God's word, if you don't study God's word, it's probable to say you don't know God's word. Makes sense. You don't study it, you don't know it. But here's the thing if you don't know God's word, then it's very difficult to know when it's being twisted. It's hard to know how to defend it or to possess the skills to use it when you need to stand against the attacks of a very real enemy. If you're not in God's word and allowing God's word to enter into you, if you're not able to rightly divide truth from the lie, you, my friend, are in danger. It's why our entire emphasis and our entire ministry platform here is simple, We teach the whole Bible because that's the only way any of us are transformed into full people, full Christians who can reach the the world. It's all about God's word. If you don't know it, you're in danger. Study his word. Love his word. Use his word to defend. Or else... Jesus will use it. He'll use it.